0: For those of you who don't know me, my name's Randy Armstrong. I'm a member here. For those of you that do know me, my name's Randy Armstrong. I've just always wanted to say that because my name didn't change. You know. Steve texted me Tuesday and said, I'm not feeling real good, or Thursday, and he said, I'm not feeling real good. Is there any chance if I don't get well by Sunday, you could help out? And I told him I was willing. And then Friday, he texted me and said, well, I've, I'm te- I've tested positive for COVID, so I won't be there Sunday. And then he texted me this morning and said, it looks like Rachel's getting sick now too. So I'd just like to, I've asked a couple people to help me out with this, but I'd just like for us to lift the mensures to the the Lord together this morning collectively. We have an opportunity together to do that. Um, Those guys have poured themselves, their lives into this church fellowship for decades. And I think it's just a great time for us to just take them before the throne, not because they've earned anything, but because they're so dependent on the Lord for his grace and so public about that. Let's just together agree in prayer. And I've asked Kamalini and Cliff to just lead us in short prayers and just join silently with them as they pray for the Mansour. We're going to be in Romans chapter eight this morning. Um, taking a break from the series in John that Steve's giving, and just take a look. I'll specifically be focusing on verse 32, but I'd like to read the context to you as well. Some of you have heard of Alistair Bag. He's a Scottish pastor who is a pastor in Cleveland, Ohio, and he tells a story about once when he's, when he's at these conferences, people give up, come up and give him notes and, and uh, little things, tell him stories and things like that. And he tells the story once of receiving a note from a conference attendee who tells a story that um, one, one of her friends in Christ, a brother in Christ, was, had brain cancer and was suffering through the, the pain that it caused and the treatments that he was having to receive. But his relationship with Jesus was such that he was just so joyful in the hospital to the point that one day when she went to visit him, he told the story about one of the nurses that was tending him had written down on his chart that he was, Mr. X is inappropriately joyful. (laughs) (laughs) And this man is just one example of what we've seen down through the centuries about in people who have that confidence in the face of life's disappointments because they know who their God is. And where does this joy and serenity come from? What's the basis of such certainty? Is it just wishful thinking or positive thinking? We know it's gotta be more than that because there's some things in life that you just can't handle if there's not something outside of life that is in control. And this morning, what I'd like to do is just explore the simple but profound logic behind our absolute confidence in God's provision, no matter what we might face in our lives. And this reasoning is laid out very plainly in this verse in Romans chapter eight, verse 32. But before I, I read the, before we examine the verse in detail, I mean, basically we're just going to take it apart piece by piece and put it back together and see what Paul is saying there. But in order to understand it, we need to really get the context because if we don't, we may end up misunderstanding what's said there. So we're, we're in Romans eight and the whole book of Romans lays out in very, Detailed fashion, creation, our fall, our guilt, universal guilt, God's provision for us in Christ, how that faith is the only way God accepts us, how we've died to sin in the person of Christ and been raised to life. And then we get chapter 8, and he talks about those who walk by the Spirit and the fact that God has actually placed his Holy Spirit in those who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And so something happens to those people, and we're going to read about that here, beginning with verse 15 of chapter 8. Now, it's a little bit long, but I think it's important to read the whole thing. I'd invite you to stand with me. If you get tired, you can sit down, but let's try to stand out of respect for the word of God. I'll begin in verse 15. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Father, this is your word. This is the reality. Lord, open our eyes this morning. You know what you want to say to each one here. And I pray that you would do that by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So this passage talks about the hope. And when we put our faith in Christ, when we see what God has done for us in Christ and putting our sins upon him and Christ bearing the punishment of those sins and that he died in our place so that we can enter into God's presence fully clean, fully righteous before him because of Christ's righteousness and not our own. God places his Holy Spirit within us. And the first thing that happens is there is a spiritual connection, if you will, and our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. There's also the realization that who we are is not who we're going to be. There's this realization that God has saved us, not just from our sin, but he saved us for something. And the more we look into the scriptures, we realize that when Christ returns, we're going to be transformed. And John says in his, his, first epist- his first epistle that when we see him, we're going to be like him. All the sin will be gone. His power, its presence, its penalty is all wiped away. And so we have that hope. And so I don't know if you noticed as we read through this, there's a whole lot of groaning going on in this passage. First, all of creation is groaning. Did you see that? And I don't, I don't know what that means, but verse 22, Paul says, we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Do you realize that there is a cosmic agony, as it were, or anticipation of what's gonna happen when you and I are transformed into the Christ image perfectly and completely? What, that new telescope that just found out that there's more galaxies they hadn't seen yet. This vast creation Paul says, all of it is groaning, just waiting for the day when those that God has redeemed through His Son, Jesus Christ, are finally revealed for who they really are. Now, if you're looking for a reason to live, I submit to you that that's worth living for. So creation's groaning. And when you see that, when you get that in your heart, in your mind, and you realize that you're like the old late... (laughs) let's see, what was his name? I can't remember. that We went to a concert decades ago. Larnell Harris was the singer. He was the warm-up guy or whatever you call him. And he was singing. And He's talked about the lady in his church a long time ago. And she got up to give her testimony. And she says, I'm not what I ought to be and I'm not what I'm going to be. But praise God, I ain't what I used to be. And we get that in our minds. And then there's this groaning, I want to be who I've been created to be in Christ. So not only is creation groaning, we're groaning as well. Verse 23. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The, the redemption of our bodies. Creation's groaning. We're groaning. I couldn't help all these babies and think, think back to our six kids when they were going, my wife groaned quite a bit <laughs> at about the 35th week. Like, come on, baby, just get here. And... I can't tell you I know how she felt. I just saw a little bit of it. But I think that there's a similar, it's it's a painful anticipation. It's a hopeful discomfort that we have because Christ is in us but he's not completely revealed in us yet. And there's still a lot of randy left that gets in the way of what things ought to be. So creation's groaning, we're groaning, but notice also the Holy Spirit's groaning in verse 26. Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. We know that God's Spirit lives in us. We know that he's our Father. We feel that. We cry out to him, Abba, Father. We know that Christ is in us. We know that when Christ returns, we're gonna be like him, but we gotta live today how are we supposed to handle that interim period between when God saved us and called us to himself and when he calls us home? And so we pray and we got 17 decisions to make today and we got life decisions and maybe goals to make or think we need to make. and We got temptations to wrestle. We know what the end game is. We know what the plan is. We know what the purpose is, but how do we handle today? We don't always know what we're supposed to do. So we're not sure what to do, so we don't know what to pray. But the Spirit himself, in verse 26, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There's a lot more going on today than you and I realize and then we can see. We know about our own groanings. We don't know about creation's groanings. I mean, there's something going on, folks, in the cosmic realm that you can spend a lot of time thinking about that. But also, before the throne of God, the Spirit of God is taking our imperfect uneducated, misdirected prayers that we offer in sincerity before the throne and the Holy Spirit takes them and somehow communicates what we really want and what God really wants to the throne of God. I don't know about you, but that's very comforting for me because there's a lot of times I'm not quite sure how to pray and there's other times when I'm absolutely sure how to pray and then later realize that I had no clue how I was supposed to pray. Anyway, but that's the context. Then we get down here to the, we're, we're coming up to this statement in verse 32, but in verse 28, there's this confidence of the believer. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, okay? Often misquoted or misunderstood. We're not gonna deal with that too much, but I think when we get into verse 32, it'll make more sense what that verse says. But notice those who are called according to his purpose. And now he's gonna give us his purpose in Verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice the certainty in those verses, whatever you think about foreknowledge and predestination and all that. It's very clear and no one would disagree that the purpose of God is that we be conformed to the image of his son. So the purpose is clear we might disagree about the process and how that works, but the purpose is clear. But I want you also to notice in that verse the certainty of what Paul's laying out there. Every person that God foreknew, he predestined. And those who predestined, he also called. And it doesn't say, some of those who predestined, he also called. And some of those he called, uh, some it worked out for some of them, so he all justified them. And then the once he justified, some of those made it to the end and so he glorified them. There's not an uncertainty there. Paul is clear that God has a purpose and God is working that out. And if he has called us, we know that he's gonna get us through to the end. And that's the backdrop here, this hope, this groaning. And we come here to verse 31, this idea of God's plan. He's laid out, it's clear. It's his plan, it's not our plan. Hopefully we buy into it. It's better, as if we, better for us if we do. But we don't convince God what he should do. He knows what he's doing. He's clear about it. He's going to see it through all the way to the end. And so Paul says, basically, verse 31, what's our response? What do we say? What can can we say to these things? Verse 31. And I'm not sure how far back these things go in Paul's mind. I don't know if it goes clear back to chapter 1, verse 1. You could make a case for that. But at least it's this section that he just talked about. What do we say in the face of what God has called us to? What awaits us? What, what do you say to that? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now we get to the fun verse I want to deal with this morning. Just We're just going to take this verse apart. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he gave us his son, what could he possibly withhold from us in the light of that? He's going to give us all things. We sang this morning, he gives us everything. Now, we know that doesn't mean we get the Lamborghini necessarily. I mean, if God gives you one, great, call me and I'll go for a ride with you or something like that. But I don't even know if it's a two-seater. I don't even know that much about Lamborghinis. But he gives us all things. I want you to see, first of all, that God's provision in light of his plan is comprehensive. You could I, I thought about sufficient, but that's just too nominal. It's comprehensive. There's there's nothing lacking in his provision. We will never lack anything that we need for God's purpose to be accomplished in our lives. Peter, Second Peter in his second epistle, chapter one, he goes even farther. Paul says here, "How will he not also with us with him graciously give us all things?" Peter says his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Peter even uses the past tense. In Peter's mind, as far as he's concerned, it's a done deal. God's made it all available. Now, it's through the knowledge of him who called us. So sometimes we don't know what he's given us because we don't know him well enough, but he'll work that out too. But he's given us everything. We don't lack anything. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, he's not giving me everything I need. I can think of a few things on my list that I'm not getting, whether it's written down or just in my mind. He's not giving me all things. Well, it's not talking about all things in a generic sense. It's talking about all things in the context of his purpose, conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, and bringing us to glory, revealing who we really are when he returns. See, your agenda in your life may be different than God's agenda for your life. If that's the case, this promise doesn't apply to your agenda. God will not give you everything you want. And the older you get, the more thankful you are that that's the case. But it's the context of being conformed to the image of Christ. So that's the first thing. God's provision is comprehensive. Nothing lacking. You will never lack anything of what you need to be made into the image of Jesus Christ. you may not know what that is, and there may be some challenges and some growth in discovering what that is, and you may need brothers and sisters to come alongside, and it may take time, it may take decades, but you don't lack anything. The problem is never, God forgot about this thing. God didn't know I was going to be that stupid or that rebellious. It's not true. So his provision is comprehensive. Nothing's lacking. Now, I'm going backward through the verse, by the way, I'm saving the best for last, But logically, okay, all things, nothing's lacking for us, that is those who have put their faith in Christ. But notice how he gives us these things. He graciously gives us all things. God will give us what we need, and please get this. I'm still trying to get it. God will give us what we need to be conformed to the image of Christ on one basis, and that basis is we need it. God never gives you what you need because you earned it. God never gives you what you need because you spent the whole week and you were every day you read your Bible and pray. The gift of all things that you need in Christ is given to you because you need it. That is a liberating reality. So if you've been, for lack of a better word, bad all week, and you've been your relation you've been mistreating people and you've been unfaithful and grouchy and anxious and whatever whatever your pet sins are you can go to the throne any minute of any day on exactly the same basis admitting your failure and looking to him for forgiveness and enablement to live the way you're supposed to live on your best day you're not, the throne of God is no more accessible to you than on your worst day. Because God gives us all things, graciously gives us. In fact, in the Greek, it's just one word. It's the word from which grace comes. Basically, Paul says, God graces us. How will he not also grace us? All things. So know this this morning. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how much you've failed. Your access to the throne of God is based on what Christ has done for you and the ax is the same all the time. Humbly recognizing your failure and your need and receiving what he gives you because you need it. If you're a parent, you will know a little bit more about that. You love your kids because they're your kids. You don't love the, your kids because they're good. You like it better when they're good. But they're still your kids even when they're bad. So notice all, God's provision is comprehensive his His provision is gracious. It is a grace provision. It is not a merit-based provision. It's available to you today, no matter what your track record in your walk with Christ. See, think about it a little bit. On what basis did God send his son to die for you? What merit did you have so that God would send his son to die in your place and take your sin upon himself? Someone said, I'll probably misquote it And Eric or another theologian in the room can correct us later, but the only thing you and I bring to our conversion is our sin. That's all we got to offer. And if God was willing to give His son, and I'll talk about that more in depth in just a minute, if he was willing to do that for you, know that today, whatever your mess up, his disposition to you is grace, and he will give you what you need in Christ if you will come and receive it. Now, the enemy of our souls will beat you to death with your failures. When he does, just simply acknowledge your failure and say, yes, but I'm a child of God. I live under grace. I'm going to go to Father. I'm going to admit that I messed up, and he's going to give me what I need for today again. How would you possibly want to live any other way? I don't know. So comprehensive provision, gracious provision, Now, I want you to notice also that everything God provides, he provides in Christ or with Christ. Notice he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, that is with Christ, graciously give us all things? He wrote to the Colossians in chapter two, verse nine, and said, in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and you have been filled in him. I would just encourage you, there's a whole lot of literature out there now and websites and theologies and ideas. I would just encourage you to be very mistrustful of any solution spiritually, whether it's labeled evangelical or not, that doesn't have the fragrance of Christ in it. If when you're done reading or studying or listening listening to somebody, if you don't have a deeper longing and desire to know Christ better, then I would suggest to you that you probably should avoid that stuff, even if it sounds really good. And there could be truth in it. But heresy is just part of the truth without the rest of the truth. And Christ should always be at the center. So if, if things don't, that you're reading or studying don't bring you closer and closer to the person of Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to, to find a different place to look for the solution to your challenges. So comprehensive provision, gracious provision, a provision that's always with Christ. It's never separated from him. And now the best part, God's provision is absolutely certain. How can the believer be so sure in the face of whatever comes that everything's okay? It's because he's already proved the level of his commitment to you and to me in the person of his son. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, Paul's arguing from the greater to the lesser. Now, when it comes to love and gifts, you can tell how much you're loved by how much the gift actually costs the person who gave it to you. It's not really based on how valuable the gift is, because if someone is really well off and they're it used to be six figures, probably now it's probably if they're seven figure income or whatever. If they give you something really nice, they didn't even probably notice that. I'm not saying it doesn't it doesn't mean anything at all, but when you realize that somebody spent a lot of time and a lot of effort and sacrificed their resources to give you something, even if the something is in itself not much. You realize the value of the gift because you see what it costs the person who gave you the thing. And here we have the ultimate gift in all of creation, in all of history, the ultimate gift. The gift that costs the giver more than you and I can even imagine. I can't imagine the Father and the Son, the Spirit, the Trinity, living together, being together for all of eternity in that love relationship that was perfect. And I'm not going to try to explain this but the scripture declares that God because he loved you and I who were totally without merit I mean he said earlier you know sometimes somebody will die for a good guy and somebody might possibly die for somebody who's got some merit but God showed his love to this and this while we were still sinners Christ died for us we were shaking our fists at him had no interest in him hated him didn't want anything to do with him so what does he do takes the thing that is most precious to him, that relationship that he had for eternity with him, and his son comes and takes on a human body, and God puts the sin of the whole world upon him, and in that moment in the cross, and again, I'm not going to try to explain it because I can't, but in that moment of the cross, the relationship was severed in some way so that the son cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that eternal relationship somehow was ruptured for a second, and again, theologians can correct me, but you get the idea, right? That God gave the best he had to save you and me from ourselves and from our sin. That's what he did. He didn't spare his own son. This is a little rabbit trail. I won't go down it too far, but I just want to touch on it. Some atheists say this is the an example of the ultimate child abuse that the father gave his son in sacrifice. That would be true if the son was some immature little kid and didn't have any say in the matter. We're talking about the son of God in terms of relationship with a father, the Godhead who through from eternity past already had this plan in place They chose to do it together. They were both all in on it. It's not a case of someone destroying someone else against their will. It's a case of the Trinity saying, this is the only way we can redeem humanity. And they knew that even before they created us and that they still engaged and created us, gave us breath. We rebelled and he sent his son to die for us. Now that's the ultimate gift. That's the full and complete gift. He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up. It's a judicial term. It's used about 10 times in Scripture, always in the case of somebody being turned over to some authority for some kind of punishment. It's used four or five times in the Gospels, and it's used five times in the book of Romans, three times in the first chapter, where God, in the reverse, is delivering up humanity to the consequences of their sin, and it's used three times in chapter 1. But then when we get to chapter 4, It says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. So there's a judicial transaction going on there where the father says, here is the son. I'm delivering him up to my own justice for you and me. And then it's used again here. He didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up. The NASB says he delivered him up for us all. Isn't that a neat phrase for us all? He delivered him up. Every one of us were in the same boat. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. God does not save good people who are trying their best. God saves sinners who could care less until God wakes them up and calls them to himself. And, we're all, and, and it's for everybody. It's for you. If you've never put your faith in Christ, Christ was delivered up for you as well. Whoever will, Jesus says, whoever will may come. Anybody who wants to come And receive this, can receive it. And we all get in on the same basis because Christ was delivered up for us. So is there anything God could have done? If you're doubting this morning, you know, I'm not really sure. I'm not just really sure God really, I mean, in my head, I know, know, you're supposed to say the right thing. Yeah, I believe God. But in my life, it sure doesn't seem, I'm just not really sure about that and I'm worried about it. Do you see the, the, what's the word? I was going to say stupidity, but that's not the right word. The illogical nature of that when you look at the cross. What else could he have done? What more could he have done to prove to you that he's in, on it, in it with you? That it's his idea and that he'll give you what you need for today. How will he not also, verse 32, how will he not also graciously give us all things? So, Now it's honesty time a little bit. Why doesn't the Father's gift of His Son give us that peace in the face of our difficulties? Why, if I know that, that God was willing and did give His Son for me so that I could be conformed to the image of Christ, why isn't that enough for me? I'll suggest three things, and I could be wrong. These are just my thoughts and you weigh them. You're intelligent people and you'll figure it out. But the first reason is I think we may have a different purpose than God does. Now, there's two parts of you, at least. One is your head and one is your heart. And a lot of times we think if we've got it right in our head, we got it. But until what you've got in your head settles down into your heart and you love it, you don't really, you haven't really got it yet. And here, I think sometimes we have a different plan than to be conformed to the image of Christ. I'm fine, quote unquote, I'm fine with the idea that Jesus died for my sins. I could use a good fire insurance policy and I, you know, when I die, I want to be sure that everything's okay. So I'm fine with that. But you're saying that every day he's going to do things and give me things to shape me into the image of Christ. I'm okay the way I am. I, you know, I got some weaknesses, and frailties, and personality. Of course, I'm, I'm good in my own skin. I'm happy. Well, if your purpose is different than his, then he's not going to provide you with all you need to accomplish your agenda. And in fact, if you've said yes to him and you didn't really get it completely, but, but you really did put your faith in Christ, thinking that you could kind of hold some stuff back, he's going to educate you real well over the years that his plan isn't your plan. And if you, don't, if you haven't bought into the purpose of God for you, to be shaped in the image of Christ, this isn't much comfort for you that he's going to give you everything you need to be shaped in the image of Christ because you want something else anyway. So that's the purpose question. There's also a process question. And that is, I think for a lot of us, Christ's death, we we. we accept it, and we know we're going to heaven, going to heaven, and we know he's paid for our sins, and there's no other way, and that's great for getting into heaven, and it's great for helping us. If I get in a real jam, I can call on to him and ask him to guide me and direct me, but basically we don't see how Christ's death really fits into the nitty-gritty of life. I mean, there's, there's my spiritual life, and then there's the rest of my life, and we're not integrated we don't see how it all fits together. See, Christ was the only human being who ever came to earth, lived a life completely integrated between his spirit and his soul and his body. And everything he did and everything he said was all in, in, the, in the connection with the Father's will for his life. And if we don't see, if we don't understand that this life is a process and not a product in itself, we're going we're to get confused and we're not going to have the comfort that we need. See, a lot of us, we have what we're planning and then there's heaven afterwards and they're not really connected. We haven't realized yet that this whole life from the time we're born until we die is the preparation for eternity. Go home and look around at everything you have and ask yourself how much of that you're taking with you. Even your body, you get a new body, which some of us are really excited about. But the whole, point, the whole point is, if you're living your life for your own comfort in this body, when you die, what have you got to show for it? If you don't realize that everything in your life, every relationship, every job, your neighbors, your health, your finances, all of that is orchestrated by a God who knows everything and controls everything and he knows exactly what he's doing, it's all orchestrated to bring you into the image of Christ. If you don't get that, you're living a disconnected life. And then you're going to wonder why, when things don't go wrong, why God doesn't come and get you out of the situation. Well, maybe you're in that situation because that's what you need to be formed into the image of Christ. We will not understand all the whys, but we should understand the what, what he's aiming at and that's the image of Christ in us. And then the third thing, not only sometimes we don't have the same purpose or we don't understand what the process really is, the third thing is I think that sometimes you and I just lose perspective. Our head's right. We know what Christ has done for us. Our heart's right. We love him. We really do love him with as much of our heart as we know. But in the situations in life, the difficulties, the challenges, the pain, the loss the news, all that stuff, we just lose sight. And we forget that when Christ died for us on the cross, when the Father delivered his son up for us, he told us, I got this. I am not holding anything back. I know what I'm doing. I will give you everything you need for today. And we just need to to regain our perspective. It's not that we don't agree with it necessarily, some of us but we just lose perspective. We don't fully appreciate the immensity of the sacrifice that God made for us. So what difference does this all make? If we really dive in and chew on this verse and respond in faith to this verse, what change takes place? If we buy into the, pro- the program, okay, the image of Christ that's what I'm here for. I don't know what that means, and I'm clueless about what that's going to involve, but I'm going to seek the Lord, and I'm going to trust my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm going to try to respond in obedience, and I'm, I know that God's going to give me what I need. Sometimes it's a knock upside the head. Sometimes just it's comfort. Sometimes it's relief. Sometimes it's not relief, but what difference does it make in our life? if if we really get this, and I think there's at least four things, and you you can have a list that's probably longer than mine, but the four things that can come to mind for me, especially after the set Brian led us this morning, the first thing is just gratitude and praise. I mean, wow, that God is faithful in everything, in every situation, I don't always see it. I don't always understand it. But I look at the cross. I see what he did there. I look at what his word says. I look at the history of those who have walked with him. And I say, wow. I just, pray, just praise and gratitude. And I'm trying to learn how to thank him, not just for the things that I like, but for the things that I don't like. And I, I'm suspecting more and more that it's the things that I don't like that are probably even more valuable to me than the things that I like. So not only gratitude and worship, that's the first one. Second is just confidence or rest or peace. I'm not sure what word to use. But there's just an unruffledness for the person who knows. God knows what he's doing. He's all in. Even if I blow it, he's going to fix it. I'm going to walk in humility as well as I can and I know I'm going to trip again. I'm going to have to confess again tonight and probably this afternoon, and but he's got it. And he knows what he's doing, and I don't. And there's just a serenity that settles into our lives. It doesn't mean we're not concerned. It doesn't mean we don't do everything we can to fix the problems we see in our lives. But underneath, there is a peace. There's a lack of anxiety because I know he's got it, even though he's not explaining to me why he's doing what he's doing. The third thing is, and I, I hope this is the right word, gravitas, seriousness. And this is a little bit negative, but it's okay. You, I'm sure you can handle it. When we realize what God did for us, what he had to do, and what he, not just, he wasn't compelled to, he did it because he loves us, what he did for us in giving us his son, and what he's making available to us every day, we have everything that we need, I better not take my sin lightly that doesn 't mean i 'm perfect or will be until he comes, but it means my sin was that serious to God. Maybe it should be that serious to me as well, so that i don 't excuse or tolerate in my own life things that I know are displeasing to god there 's just a, a there 's a serenity and, a, and, a, and praise to God a peace, a lack of anxiety, but there's also a seriousness. Now, that doesn't mean we don't laugh. We can laugh better than any of them because we've got the joy of the Lord, which is the fourth thing. But, but there's a seriousness about our sin that we don't take it lightly. We don't excuse it. If we're challenged on it by someone who loves us, we humble ourselves and admit it. And we take life seriously in that sense because of what he did. And then fourthly, there's, there's a joy that just... Irradiates from a, a heart that knows it's all, I finally get what life's about. I finally get what I'm supposed to do. All this time, I thought I was supposed to develop a career and, and get these things, you know, get these notches on my belt or whatever imagery you want to use and develop and get all this stuff and reputation and all that. No, it's the image of Christ. That's what I'm here for. And God, it's God's idea. It's not my idea. And he's all in. And he's got all power, and he loves me perfectly, and he knows exactly what he's doing. Everything's going according to plan. It doesn't look like it, and I don't necessarily enjoy it. Everything's on schedule. He knows when the Lord's coming back. He knows the day he's going to call each of us home. You know, we might have a day. We might might be this afternoon, might be a year. Who knows when? But everything's according to plan. It's all on schedule. We've got exactly what we need to be who God made us to be in Christ. So, why wouldn't you be joyful? It's when we get our eyes off of that that we get down. And that's not at all to minimize suffering and pain. Paul calls it suffering, he says we groan. There's a lot of agony. We weep with those who weep, we feel the pain of those around us. But underneath all of that is that joy knowing that all of this is going to be made right. I think it's Keller that says everything wrong will be made right. Everything that's wrong today will be made right. And somehow in the divine plan of God, everything's on schedule. So Brian, you can come up with the gang. But because God gave us his son, we know he's not going to hold anything back that we need in order to be conformed to the image of Christ. And the more you and I reflect on that and reflect on the supreme act of God giving his son for us, for our sin, the more serene and confident and joyful we'll be in our daily lives. So that when the difficult times come, and who knows what this year will bring, in those difficult situations Other people might even think that we've become inappropriately joyful. Father, we thank you, and we pray that you would increase our faith. Show us who you are, that we might honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. You never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. We'll have people up in the front if you'd like prayer for something this morning. If you have any questions or Disagree on something, I'm available. And you talk to some of the elders here as well if you have questions. And just hope you have a great day and you enjoy the discovery today of what it means that God has given you everything you need for this afternoon. Peace.